You're listening to a sermon series by Grace City Church, a church plant in Green Square in Sydney. For more information about us, visit gracecity.com.au. Well, we're nearly there. We're nearly there. Uh, We've been exploring the doctrine of the Trinity, and I've been having a look on the Slido, which has been great. Um, But there's been a question that's popped up a few times, which is, what does all of this mean? Why does this matter for my life? And we've been exploring three challenges, and the third one says, this isn't practical. And that's the challenge we are going to tackle in this talk. So would you pray with me as we do this? Heavenly Father, as we come to this fourth talk, we pray that you would sustain us, sustain our minds so that we can engage with your word, and sustain our hearts that we might receive your word with humility and joy. Please speak to us and show us why it is life-transforming to know you as our Father through your Son and in your Spirit. And we pray it in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, it could be that you've listened to these talks and maybe you've learnt some things. Maybe you're not really sure why all of it matters. This is the stuff of theologians and philosophers. But why do I need any of this stuff? How will it help me in everyday life when I'm worried about deadlines, covid and a mortgage. My aim in this talk is to show you why the doctrine of the Trinity is life-transforming. But right from the get-go, let me remind you of what I shared from Scott Swain in our first talk. Page 71, he says, learning to praise the Trinity does not derive its importance or usefulness from its ability to serve other enterprises. Learning to know the triune God, to receive the triune God, to rejoice in the triune God, and learning to help others do the same is an end in itself, because the triune God is the ultimate end of all things. The doctrine of the Trinity isn't important simply because it helps us get something else. God is the goal. The Westminster Catechism says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is our highest purpose and calling in life. That is the goal of our salvation. Um, This isn't in my script, but John says, um, uh, Jesus says in the book of John, uh, this is eternal life, that you know the Father. That is eternal life. Uh, We actually get a vision of the new creation in the book of Revelation, and what we see is that we will be gathered around our God, praising Him into eternity which means that the doctrine of the Trinity is actually deeply practical in and of itself. Because in the doctrine of the Trinity, we learn to praise God according to who He is. Coming to know Him is the ultimate goal. It is eternal life. And in a sense, we are being attuned to the praises that we will be singing into eternity. Which means that the most practical thing we can actually do right now is simply come before our God and humbly echo the words of Paul In Romans chapter 11, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever, ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Having said that, you'd probably be a little disappointed if we finished the fourth talk there. 
So what's the plan for this talk? Well, I think it's appropriate that actually we spend most of our time talking about what it means to relate to God, because that's really what we've been talking about this whole weekend. So I want to do three things. First, I want to explore what it means for God to relate to us, which is what we call revelation. And then I want to explore what it means for us to relate to God, which is what we actually most clearly do in prayer. So revelation and prayer. But then the third thing we'll explore is how the doctrine of the Trinity actually shapes our identity. So let's jump into the Trinity and Revelation, and we'll start with why the Trinity is actually revealed. Because let me ask you this, what difference would it make if the Trinity had never been revealed? If God had never revealed himself as Father, Son, and Spirit, what difference would that make? And you might say, well, if God had never revealed himself, then we wouldn't believe in any God. Without revelation, all we're left with is atheism. But that's actually not true, because there would still be a reason to believe in God, because we would still have creation, and creation itself actually tells us something about God. It tells us that there is a God and that He is the Creator. Have a look at what it says in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. So if, even if God hadn't stepped into this world to reveal himself as triune, creation would still tell us something about God. The heavens declare his glory. There is a God, and he is the creator. But here's the thing. If all we have to go off is creation, then that means the most basic reality in the universe is power. Because the only thing that creation tells you is that there is a God who has the power to create. Hello. (laughs) That's actually, this, um, the creator as something fundamentally powerful is actually what Paul says in uh, Romans 1.20. Have a look at what this says. This is interesting. He says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So in this verse, Paul is explaining what we can know about God simply from what has been made. He's explaining what creation tells us about God, and his point here is that this leaves us without an excuse for for knowing that there is a God. But notice what kind of a God you end up with if all you have is creation. You can see it there in the middle. Power. Power. If all we have to go off is creation, then power lies at the heart of the universe because all we would know is that there's a God who has the power to create, which leaves us with a God who is raw power. And raw power is scary. Have a look at how Karl Barth describes that kind of a God. He says, perhaps you recall how When Hitler used to speak of God, he called him the Almighty. But it is not the Almighty who is God. We cannot understand from the standpoint of a supreme concept of power who God is. And the man who calls the Almighty God misses God in the most terrible way. 
We could not better describe and define the devil than by trying to think of this, think this idea of self-based, free, sovereign ability. Now, Bart isn't saying that God isn't the Almighty. What he is saying is that when you start from the standpoint of power, what you end up with is a tyrant. If God had never revealed himself as Father, Son, and Spirit, then all we would have to go off is creation which would make power the most basic reality, and that would make this God a tyrant. And that's actually what we see in every single ancient culture. If you go back in time before the explosion of Christianity, what you'll see is that almost every single culture outside of Israel believed in gods who were fundamentally powerful. Almost every culture believed in gods, and they believed they were fundamentally powerful. And that, that belief profoundly shaped ancient culture and how they saw the world. For them, power was the most ultimate virtue and weakness meant shame. And this made the ancient world cruel. It made it unforgiving and harsh. Historian Tom Holland, he actually makes this point in his book, Dominion. He says this, the heroes of the Iliad, favourites of the gods, golden and predatory, had scorned the weak and downtrodden. So too, for all the honour that Julian paid them, had philosophers. The starving deserved no sympathy. Beggars were best rounded up and deported. Pity risked undermining a wise man's self-control. Only fellow citizens of good character who, through no fault of their own, had fallen on evil days might conceivably merit assistance. If God, our God, had never revealed himself, and if all we had to go off was creation, then power is the most basic reality in the universe, and that leaves us with a cold and a cruel world. Here's the good news. Power is not the most basic reality in this universe. Because before God created, he was doing something else. John 17. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Before God had ever created the world, there was love. And that means the most basic reality in this universe isn't just power, it's love. And God can only be love if he is a trinity. Because if God is not triune, then he had nothing to love before the creation of the world. The only thing he could have loved is himself in an ugly, self-centered kind of love. Have a look at how Richard of St. Victor de describes this in the 12th century. He says, No one is properly said to have charity on the basis of his own private love of himself, and so it is necessary for love to be directed toward another for it to be charity. Therefore, where, where a plurality of persons is lacking, charity cannot exist. That's why Allah isn't 
love. He would have had nothing to love before he made the world. That's why Muslims describe Allah as fundamentally omnipotent, raw power. But that is not who our God is. Because before he was the creator, he was father, pouring out his love upon the Son and the Spirit. This isn't in your booklets, but Karl Barth once said that God's triunity is the secret of his beauty. God's triunity is the secret of his beauty. That is why we say God is love. As it says in 1 John 4, God is love. Now, God is also power. He is the Almighty, but his power is shot through at every point with love. And this is what he shows us on the cross. On the cross, the all-powerful Son through whom all things were made, he stretched out his hands, not to command an army, but to be nailed to a cross. And in doing so, he spoke a word of love into a cold and cruel world. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So why does all of this matter? If God had never revealed himself as Father, Son, and Spirit, then power would be the most basic reality in the universe, and that profoundly shapes the kind of world that we live in. It makes it harsh and unforgiving. But because God has revealed himself as triune, it means love is the most basic reality in the universe And that has profound implications for how we live in this world and the kind of things that we value. Can you see how the Trinity actually turns the world upside down? If our world is radically different to the ancient world, it's because God did reveal himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. And to the extent that we lose our faith in the Trinity, we revert to a world based on power and tribalism. Athanasius was actually one of the theologians who reflected on this, um, and he points out that this is why we should name God as Father, rather than simply as the Creator, or as he says, the unoriginate. He says this, it is more pious and more accurate to signify God from the Son and call him Father than to name him from his works only and call him unoriginate. The unoriginate is power, but the Father is love. That's why the Trinity is revealed. It puts love on top. But now I want to pivot a little and explore how the Trinity is revealed. And I want to start by naming something that often gets said, or at least thought, whenever we start talking about the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this is what you'll often hear. We talk a lot about the Father and the Son, but we don't talk enough about the Spirit, at least in certain circles. Sometimes you'll hear the caricature, Father, Son, and Holy Bible... (laughs) It's the thought that we've somehow pressed mute on the spirit, that we've left him off the table, 
leaving him as the forgotten member of the Trinity. And in response to that, the suggestion is, we need to talk more about the Spirit. Have you ever heard that? Have you thought that yourself? I do think there is something helpful about the idea that we should talk more about the Spirit. After all, talking about God is never a bad thing. But I do want to pump the brakes just a little bit. I want to question the assumption that we don't talk enough about the Spirit. And I think if we understand the Trinity, we'll understand why and we'll see it in the Bible. Have you noticed that in the Bible, the Spirit is never the object of our attention? The Bible speaks about us having two objects of attention. It speaks about us seeing the Father as we see the Son. Have a look at John 14, 9. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. In a sense, Christian sight is placed upon the Father and the Son. Or better yet, Christian sight is placed upon the Father through the Son. That feels really wrong, doesn't it? Feels like a binity, not a trinity, and that sounds a lot like heresy. So, how are we going to make some sense out of this? Well, I think if we understand the doctrine of the Trinity, then we'll actually see why the Bible speaks the way it does about us seeing the Father and the Son. And I think it comes down to an understanding of how the Trinity is revealed to us. And I think if we can wrap our heads around how the Trinity is revealed to us, then we'll actually see a very deep and profound truth to the way that the Bible speaks. Here is the key idea. If you can see the Father and the Son, it's only because the Spirit is in you giving you sight. We don't see the Spirit because He is giving us sight to see the Father through the Son. This is actually what we saw in the Bible in talk two. The Spirit is how God becomes present to us, with us, in us. Or as we saw in talk three, the Father, Son, and Spirit, they all do the same thing. They all reveal God, but they don't do it in the same way. And the Spirit's role in Revelation is to enable us to see the Father through the Son. In a sense, we see the Father through the Son in the Spirit. In the Spirit. The Father is the revealer, and the Son is the revelation given, sent from the Father, but the Spirit is the effect of revealedness in us. If we can see, it's because He's in us. Karl Barth actually talks about this. He has a curly way of explaining it, but I think what he says is helpful, and then I'm going to show you some things in the Bible. He says, It is God Himself who, according to the biblical understanding of Revelation, is the revealing God and the event of revelation, and its effect on man. God himself is revealer, revelation, and revealedness. And this is exactly what we see in the Bible. The Spirit is the one who enables us to say, Jesus is Lord. 
Have a look at 1 Corinthians 12, 3. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. If the Spirit was not at work in us, we wouldn't be able to say that Jesus is Lord, at least in a saving way. And the Spirit is also the one who enables us to cry out to our God as Abba, Father. Romans 8.15, the Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again, rather the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship and by Him we cry, Abba, Father. This is why the Spirit is never the object of our attention. He is the one directing our attention to the Father and to the Son. I've got one other example from the Bible. It comes from the book of Revelation. Before we read it, let me ask you, how many members of the Trinity will we be praising and glorifying in heaven? Two. Let me show you. Have a look at this. Revelation 5.13. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb... Be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. Let me ask the obvious question. Where's the Spirit? Has the Spirit gone missing in the new creation, leaving us only with a binity? No. Let me show you where the Spirit is. Have a look at what John says right at the start of his vision in Revelation 4 verse 2. He says... At once, I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Grace City, the Spirit isn't on the throne, at least according to Revelation, because He is with us. He is the one who brings us to the throne. He is the one who enables us to see the throne That's where the Spirit is. He is with me. He is with you. I'm not at all saying that we don't praise and glorify the Spirit as God. Don't hear me saying that. As the Nicene Creed says, we worship and glorify the Spirit along with the Father and the Son. But the Father, Son, and Spirit aren't three different people. Together they are the one God. And they do the same thing, but they don't do it in the same way. God relates to us in an undivided, yet threefold way. And that actually makes it appropriate for us to talk about the three persons in different ways. They aren't identical. And the unique role of the Spirit is not to be the object of our attention, but to be the one who enables it. And so we pray, Father, send your spirit so that I might know you. Because if I don't have your spirit, I don't know you. I don't see you. And so we are desperate for the spirit. His role is to place our attention upon the Father as he is revealed to us in the Son. Have a look at how J.I. Packer describes the role of the spirit. 
The Holy Spirit's distinctive new covenant role then is to fulfill what we may call a floodlight ministry in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is as if the Spirit stands behind us, I'd actually say with us, throwing light over our shoulder onto Jesus who stands facing us. The Spirit's message to us is never, look at me, listen to me, come to me, get to know me, but always look at Him and see His glory, listen to Him and hear His Word, go to Him and have life, get to know Him and taste His gift of joy and peace. And what I'd add is, without the Spirit, you cannot do that. That's why we don't talk about the Spirit in the same way as the Father, which again is different to how we talk about the Son. And this language reflects how God is revealed to us. It reflects how God relates to us. But let's talk about how we relate to God. And the clearest way in which we relate to God is through prayer. And in particular, I want to focus in on the question of who we should pray to. And the reason why I want to focus in on this is not just to be pedantic and a stickler. I know it's a weighty thing to talk about who we pray to. It's a personal thing. But I actually want to show you that if we can answer the question of who we should pray to, then that will actually take us to the depths of what it means to pray to our triune God as we cry out, Abba, Father. And what I want to propose is that it is most appropriate for us as Christians to pray to the Father. Now, before I explain why, please don't hear me saying that it's wrong to pray to Jesus or the Spirit. I am definitely not saying that God won't hear your prayers if you don't pray like that. I'm not at all saying that prayers to the Father are somehow more right. It's not what I'm saying. But what I do want to show you is that if we understand the doctrine of the Trinity rightly, we will see why it's appropriate for us to pray to the Father. And if we can wrap our heads around why that's the case, then I think we'll come to a deeper appreciation of what it means to pray to our Heavenly Father. And I simply want to start with the Bible itself, and in particular with Jesus. Because when the disciples asked Him how they should pray, this is what He said. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in Heaven, hallowed be Your name. Now notice that Jesus taught His disciples and ultimately us to pray to our Father. And this is actually the example that we see carried through the entire New Testament. Every clear example of prayer in the New Testament is addressed to God the Father. Um, You can see just one example of that at the start of Colossians. Paul says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And that example of praying to God the Father is carried through the entire New Testament time and time again. You might say, ah, there is one example of prayer to Jesus in the New Testament. And it's when Stephen prays to Jesus as he's being stoned to death in Acts chapter 7. 
Um, You can see that there at the end of the passage in your booklet. It says, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And you might point to that and say, see, there it is, prayer to Jesus rather than the Father. But there are two details in that passage that actually make me question whether Stephen is actually praying to Jesus, at least in the normal sense of the word. The first detail is that the original Greek doesn't actually say that Stephen prayed to Jesus. It simply says that he called out. The translators of the NIV have simply made the decision to translate that word as pray. Um, If you go to another translation like the ESV, you'll see them translate it more literally as he called out. But there's also a second detail, which is the fact that Stephen can literally see Jesus, with his very own eyes. You can see that at the start of the passage there, which means that Stephen isn't so much praying to Jesus, so much as he's literally having a conversation. He can see him, and so he calls out to him. And I think that actually leaves us with no clear examples of prayer to Jesus in the Bible, let alone the Spirit. The only other possible example of prayer to Jesus is actually right at the end of Revelation, and John says, come, Lord Jesus, come. But again, if you actually look at the context, read the chapter, you'll see that John is actually having a conversation with the risen Lord Jesus in his vision of heaven. And so Jesus says some things to him, and then he says, come, Lord Jesus, So I think that isn't really an example of prayer either, which I think leaves us with every clear example of prayer in the New Testament as being addressed to the Father. But you might come back to that and say, there's heaps of things that they did in the Bible that we don't, and there's heaps of things that we do that they didn't. Not everything described in the Bible is prescribed for all Christians. But here is where the doctrine of the Trinity can actually help us understand why the Bible consistently teaches us to pray to the Father. And if we can wrap our heads around why that is, I think we'll actually come to a deeper appreciation of prayer. And I think one of the misconceptions here is that if we are only praying to the Father, then we're leaving out the Son and the Spirit. They're just kind of hanging around, not really doing much. You know when you're in a group and two people start having a conversation kind of to themselves and everyone just kind of awkwardly watches on? Um, Is that what's going on in prayer? Does Jesus just wish that for once we'd talk to him? Um, I hope you can see already that this kind of thinking actually misunderstands who our God is in the doctrine of the Trinity and misunderstand what's going on in prayer. Because remember back to what we saw this morning. The Father, Son, and Spirit are all present and active in everything that God does. He works indivisibly. They don't do the same thing in the same way. They actually each act in a way that reflects the relations between them. And that's exactly what's going on in prayer. Prayer is the act by which God hears us and invites us into relationship with himself. And that means that the Father, Son, and Spirit are all active when we are praying to our Heavenly Father. 
but not in the same way. They are all active, but not in the same way. And that's actually what we see in the Bible itself. The Bible says that the only reason we can pray to the Father is because Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. Have a look at Romans 8.34. It says, Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. You'll see similar language in the book of Hebrews. The only reason we can pray to God the Father is because Jesus is right there with him, interceding for us. If Christ was not there, bringing our prayers to the Father, then our prayers would fall on deaf ears. If Christ is not active in our prayers, the reality is we're praying to no one. But what about the Spirit? Paul actually speaks about the Spirit only a few verses before the one we just read. Have a look. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Can you see how both Jesus and the Spirit are interceding for us? but they don't intercede in the same way. Because while Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, the Spirit is with us. He is with us, helping us in our weakness, teaching us what to pray for. If the Spirit wasn't at work in us, we wouldn't truly be praying at all. Can you see how we don't have three separate relationships with the Father, Son, and Spirit? as if we could have three separate conversations with each of them. We relate to the one God by approaching the Father through the Son and in the Spirit. And when we pray to the Father, we're not praying to the exclusion of the Son and the Spirit. We can only pray to the Father because the Son is there. And we can only pray to the Father because the Spirit is with us. Each of them are active in hearing our prayers. Without even just one of them, our prayers would fall on deaf ears, and there is no prayer at all. It means the entire Trinity is present and at work in our prayer. We actually see all this come together in the verse that we've been memorizing together. Can we do it? Yeah? Because you are God's sons, He sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. When we call out to God as our Father, we are calling out in the Spirit of His Son. And so it's appropriate that we pray to the Father, because when we do this, we relate to the Father, Son, and Spirit in a way that reflects their eternal triune relations. That's the Trinity and prayer. But now I want to finish by exploring what difference the Trinity actually makes for our very own identity. And the reason I want to finish by talking about identity is because one of the biggest issues in our culture right now, if not the biggest, is what I'm calling identity dysphoria. We don't know who we are. We don't know who we are, but that's not for lack of options. 
Our culture actually saddles every individual with the sole responsibility of creating our own identity. No one can tell you who you are, only you can decide. And so we turn to any number of things to try and define ourselves. But the cruel fact is, is that the pressure of having to create our own identity is ultimately crushing. One of my family members is a clinical psychologist. Um, we were talking together. We were talking about what some of the most common issues are that they talk about. And the thing that struck me was that the, the most common issue, at least for this family member, was that most people, people weren't happy. And they weren't happy because they didn't know who they were meant to be. They felt like they should know who they were meant to be and that that would make them happy. And what's more, they felt like they were the only ones who didn't know who they were, the only ones who weren't happy. We're stumbling around in the dark, fumbling for an identity, and none of the ones we create for ourselves can withstand the pressures of life. What we need is for an identity to be given to us, a true life-giving, liberating identity. And into that space, the triune God speaks one word above all others. Child. But the Bible also says that not everyone can claim that identity for themselves. The Bible actually says there are two fundamental identities that reflect two different men. Every single person on this planet is walking in the footsteps of one of two men. Either we are in Adam, who turned his back on God in the Garden of Eden with um, his wife, um, Eve. <laughs> It wasn't in my script. <laughs> I didn't sleep well. <laughs> there was Adam, who turned his back on God, rejected God's rule over his life, ultimately leading to death. Rather, in Adam, all we are in Christ. In Christ, who brings a resurrection from death. These are the two most basic identities. We are either in one of them or the other. Look at how Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians 15. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. These are the two most basic identities. Either we are in Adam, which leads to death, or we are in Christ. And everyone exists in one of these two identities. We've either rejected God's rule for our lives and become like our father, Adam, or we are in Christ. And what's happening when God saves us is that he is transferring us from being in Adam to being in Christ. And it's only in Christ that we can actually enjoy the blessings of salvation. Because when I am in Christ, what's his becomes mine. His righteousness becomes my righteousness. His wisdom becomes my wisdom. His holiness becomes my holiness. Have a look at 1 Corinthians 1.30. Notice the language of being in Christ. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us 
wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. This language of being in Christ is what we call union with Christ. And it's the reality that when I am in Christ, I am united with Him. And God sees me the same way He sees Jesus. When God looks at me, He sees the innocent righteousness of Jesus. And that is why I and you are declared innocent. This is actually the reality that underpins every other aspect of salvation. Have a look at what John Murray says about union with Christ. Union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. It is not simply a phase of the application of redemption. It underlies every aspect of redemption. Every aspect of salvation is really just the outworking of the fact that I am in Christ and united with Him, and when God sees me, He sees Jesus. But what does this have to do with identity? Everything. Because when I am in Christ, His identity becomes my identity. And above all, above all else, who is Jesus? The Son. He is the Son. The most basic and eternal way that God sees Jesus is as His Son. When He was baptized, the voice said, Here is my Son. That's who He is. And that means if I am in Christ, when God sees me, the most basic and fundamental thing He sees is His child, a son or a daughter. I am, above all else, a child of the Father because Jesus is, above all else, the Son of the Father. And I am in Him. In fact, the only reason I can call God my Father is because I am in the Son. And I name Him as Father because I am with Jesus. In that sense, my identity, your identity, is actually caught up with and defined by the doctrine of the Trinity. And that means that every other part of salvation and every other part of life is second to the reality that I am God's son, his child. That's actually how Paul describes all of salvation in Romans 8. Our predestination, justification, glorification, it's all done so that we would become God's children. Have a look. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Why did God just justify you? So you could be his child. Why has God done these things? So that we might be conformed to the image of his Son, that Jesus might have many brothers and sisters. So, Grace City, who are you? If you are in Christ, then above all else, you are a child of God. Because above all else, your Savior is the Son, eternally and perfectly. And this is what we call adoption. And adoption, being invited into the Father's love for His Son is the highest blessing of the Christian life. 
Have a look at how J.I. Packer describes this. Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. To be right with God the judge, justification, is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father, adoption is a greater. If you want to know, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Let me finish by explaining what this means. What I want to do is share my favorite Bible verse with you. My favorite verse is John 15, 9. This is what it says. As the Father has loved me, so so I have loved you. Do you know what that means? It says that Jesus has loved you just as the Father has loved him. It means that he loves you with the same eternal, perfect, infinite and indestructible love that the Father has been pouring out upon the Son from all eternity. Jesus' love for us is the same love that the Father has for the Son. Which means that the day Jesus stops loving you is the same day the Father stops loving his Son. And the day he stops loving the Son is the day God ceases to be triune. God's love for you is now bound up with the very existence of the Trinity itself. The fact that God is triune is the guarantee that he will love you into eternity. So whenever you doubt God's love for you, remember that as long as God is still God, he will love you. Just as the Father has loved the Son, so Jesus has loved you. The content of that love, the shape of that love is the cross. Christ has demonstrated and revealed his love in his sacrificial death for us. And it's actually in the cross that we most clearly see for ourselves the kind of love that has existed within our triune God from all eternity. So, Grace City, as we head back to our homes, to our workplaces, let us go in the bold knowledge that above all else we are children of God. Never let anything else define you above that reality. Not your gender, not your sexuality, not your relationship status, not your career, not your bank account, not your failures, not even your successes. Nothing but God's love for you as his beloved child. And if you aren't yet in Christ, if you are still, so to speak, in Adam, can I urge you, bind yourself to him by faith and claim that identity as being a child of God for your own. This is the doctrine of the Trinity. To know, love, and worship God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.
and it's only in the Trinity that we find ourselves. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we praise you, we glorify you, and we thank you for adopting us as your children. We thank you for your Son who died for us so that we could call you what he has been calling you from all eternity, Father. Give us an unshakable knowledge that we are your children. And we pray that we would live as your children for the rest of our days. We love you and we worship you. And we pray this through your Son and in your spirit. Amen.